0: The following episode of the 9 pm edict contains strong language, politics, and some very, very disturbing sexual imagery.
1: Saturday, the 18th of June 2022. The Winter Series continues with another special guest episode David F. Porteous. He's a Scottish author, social researcher, podcaster, and all round chap to talk to. And we had a long conversation the other day about all the things from Rwanda to the Thunderdome. In this episode, we talk at great length about the Royal Family. My main objection to, to the Royal Family
0: um, is that uh, they really all need to have hair
1: transplants. We also talk about Boris Johnson. The question is,
0: will Boris Johnson do the honorable thing? And the answer is he never has to this point in his
1: life. And in both British and Australian politics, have you noticed how we have the curious phrase, hard-working families?
0: And it's weird because we never decide that we're going to target um, any kind of government policy at
1: smart working families. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm extensive salad tossing of the monarchy with David F. Porteus. Uh, they'll kill us for that. David F. Porteous, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me back. Obviously, I didn't offend nearly enough people the first time round. Otherwise, you wouldn't have invited me back.
1: Oh, yes and no. (laughs) I'll
0: try to do better this time. And you can judge what I'm trying to do
1: in terms of better. Well, I I think then, to begin with, Mr. Portia, so I would like to congratulate uh, the United Kingdom uh, and you personally on adopting Australia's methodology for dealing with refugees. Sorry, we can't call them refugees. They're not necessarily refugees. They're asylum seekers. So well done. Off to Rwanda they go. I'd like to say two things about this,
0: okay? Uh, Firstly, there's nobody who does ironic cruelty like the British. I mean, if a refugee or an asylum seeker is arriving at your country, you can send them anywhere you want in the world, and we decided to pick a country best known internationally for its genocide. Mm. That's that's a really that's that's a sweet spot in terms of where to send people. I mean I've not been to Rwanda, but I, I hear the, the Renaissance churches are magnificent. Um however The second thing is, Rwanda wasn't even, like, our plan A for this. The plan A for the Conservative government of the UK was to put all of our asylum seekers into a big crate marked Jews and send it back to 1930s Germany. Uh, Unfortunately, our scientists haven't quite cracked that yet. So Rwanda is is really
1: our second tier choice. Uh, For those of you uh, who are listening now who are not across all this, uh, here is... uh, Part of an explainer from the BBC's Ross Atkins, as usual, it's excellent, this is just a small part.
2: In April, the UK government announced a new immigration policy. Those who travel to the UK by illegal and dangerous routes, including by small boats across the channel, may be relocated to Rwanda, where they will have their asylum claims considered. The first flight was scheduled for this week, and it's faced legal challenges. Tuesday's flight goes ahead, but this matter isn't going away. The policy faces a judicial review in July. And while that process plays out, many people are still cramming into small inflatable boats and making the journey from France to England. Already this year, more than 10,000 people have done so, more than twice the equivalent of last year. Most arrive with the help of people smugglers. Most will apply for asylum. Many will be accepted. But the government wants to stop people reaching the UK illegally and the plan to fly some arrivals 4,000 miles to Rwanda is part of that.
0: This innovative approach, driven by our shared humanitarian impulse and made possible by Brexit freedoms, will provide safe and legal routes for asylum while disrupting the business model of the gangs.
2: But from the start, the policy has been met with a range of opposition. And as we see the government's asylum policy being fought over, some believe perhaps this was the goal. Tory MP Jesse Norman says the Rwanda policy is ugly and accuses Boris Johnson of seeking to create political and cultural dividing lines. Mr Johnson denies this, but whether by design or not, this policy is causing division, with critics alleging a lack of compassion and the Prime Minister responding like this.
0: There is no humanity or compassion in allowing desperate and innocent people to have their dreams of a better life exploited. By ruthless gangs as they're taken to their deaths in unseaworthy boats.
2: The question though is not whether gangs should be allowed to exploit people, it's whether this policy will actually stop that from happening, and if it's legal. In the long term, both have yet to be settled.
1: Now, an Australian listening to that will go, uh-huh, know all of that. We want to stop them reaching Britain illegally. There is literally nothing illegal about someone seeking asylum. Um, whether they come in a dodgy rubber boat or in a private jet. Sure. And
0: and the government's main objection does seem to be that there were other safe countries people could have sought asylum in first. So this is the government of Britain which has spent the last six years dragging us out of the EU, telling people that they should want to live in France. Um, They don't want to live in France. British people aren't allowed to live in France. It's a weird approach to take. And the reason why they're traveling in by boat is because the Brexit freedoms that Mr. Johnson was trumpeting (laughs) have effectively made our ports a nightmare. And you can't bring, you can't even bring asylum seekers in
1: the back of a truck anymore. You can't do it. I thought the good bit about them being Brexit freedoms, is the Brexit freedom to ignore basic human rights. Sure, that's the kicker. And I go I'll well tell, done, well done, Boris.
0: Well done. I'll tell. This is one of these uh, fake arguments because obviously the Conservatives were ignoring human rights for decades um, oh, before we we left uh, the EU. Um, I think the thing that I find most troubling about this whole policy isn't isn't the hypocrisy of you should want to live in France. Um, it's the madness of the whole thing. It's a policy aimed specifically at people who took hazardous and illegal routes to get here. So, imagine a situation. Are you familiar with American Ninja Warrior,
1: or maybe Takeshi's Castle?
0: Uh, okay, it's uh, it's an Tukeshi's obstacle
1: castle, course. Takeshi's Castle, yes, Castle Castle. Sure. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> it's fine. It's,
0: it's the same same basic idea. Um, so it's a situation where the fittest and most determined people risk their lives because they were so determined to build a better life for themselves in your country that they put, they pulled themselves out of the foam onto the beaches of the promised land. And what we give them is an economy flight to Rwanda and a poor selection of meal choice. Mm. It feels like these are the people that you would want in your country. If you have people who are absolutely determined to be here and are so committed at changing their lives for the better, why isn't that a citizen of your country that you
1: want? And indeed, Australia's experience has been exactly that before, you know, the the wall came down. The the distant processing, interestingly enough, uh, it was called offshore processing in Australia. And then for a brief period, without any sense of irony whatsoever, the government called it the Pacific Solution.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a terrible thing to laugh at, um, yeah, because it's unspeakable. Um, but yeah. at the same time, what else? What other reaction can you have?
1: Um, um, yes, that? so we would you know, intercept them at sea, and, and we used to take them to Nauru, which is this tiny little pile of bird poo in the Pacific Ocean uh, whose exports uh, were bird poo until the bird poo ran out. Yep. Uh, but then that that proved to be controversial for some reason, uh, and and people could get there. So instead, we then used Manus Island, which is an island uh, on the north coast of Papua New Guinea, uh, which was uh, a... a Base, air base, and sea base during World War Two, uh, and and you can imagine how attractive it is when we just build a nice tropical concentration camp there. Uh, but then leave it to, well, uh, is it F- F- GS Security for G? What what what's the name of the name this week of that grand British-based prison running company?
0: I haven't kept track. If they're not G4S anymore, then they've, they've changed it relatively relatively recently. Yes. But uh, they yes. do that from time to time, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's this interesting thing about this. And the the um, refugee, asylum seeker, whatever we want to call it, issue that Australia has is widely known, um, I think. So your, your policies and the... I'll use the word treatment, the treatment of people um, seeking to come into Australia is one of those things which is internationally relatively famous um, about Australia. And it it feels like the arguments are the same against doing this, that there's a certain um, there's a belief that these people who are coming in are going to be some kind of massive drain um, Mm. on our state in some way. Uh, and this is a belief which is maintained despite the fact that all of the evidence points to the opposite um, of that. And I was looking at our particular costs for sending people to Rwanda instead. So you might you might be persuaded by the notion that um, it's cheaper to have your refugees or your asylum seekers sent to Rwanda than it is to deal with them in Middle England. Um, unfortunately, Um, there is a certain amount of incompetence that you have to figure into this. Um, It costs something like 13,000 pounds or 23,000 Australian dollars to move one person from the UK. That's the average um, in 2020 of all the people that we wanted to remove from the UK, uh, which is pretty huge. And you might be asking yourself, well, if we left that person in the UK and allowed them to suckle on Queen Elizabeth's uh, government's teats, um, and enjoy all of the benefits for that. How much would that have run them? Well, actually, um, it would have been about £13,000 um, or about 23,000 Australian dollars. Yeah. So it's like there's no, there's not a financial argument for doing this. And we're going to spend around about £120 million sending people to Rwanda, if we can ever send oh, any. Is
1: that all? Is that all? Yeah. We, we spend, you spend, we a billion spend dollars. half a billion
0: a year on this, yeah? Yeah um but this is obviously a a ramp up process to this point Mm. we've sent none so this Mm. is you know (laughs) this is how how competent our evil state is um we've so far sent no planes um but as soon as the first plane was cancelled the home secretary was out there making statements saying oh we're definitely definitely going to send a second plane and the truth is this is wait 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 wait. that'll still be the first plane uh, that's true. Yes. <laughs> that's, true. <laughs> that's true. I'm sure. Although, although for the purposes of government accounting, it will be the fourth plane um, that's gone out. Um, but I, I feel like, I feel like this is theater and it's theater mm-hmm. that's played out for, um, voters, the voters who might have been wobbling, slightly around uh, Mr. Johnson's uh, recent
1: leadership uh, contest and
0: all this sort of stuff, which we'll talk about later, I've no doubt.
1: We will indeed. Let's talk about, uh, well, we're talking about the treatment of people at the lower end of the uh, enjoyment of life thrill-seeking scale. Minimum wage, Australia this week. Uh, The Fair Work Commission, which I, I, I... I get sick of the word Orwellian, but, you know, there we go. The Fair Work Commission has approved a 5.2% rise in the minimum wage. It's now, in Australian dollars, $21.38 an hour. That's £12.27 an hour. Junior rates under 21 get a little less. Now, you think, oh, good, 5.2% rise until you discover that the inflation rate to the end of March this year was 5.1%. So it's not really much of a, a wage. Now, I'll come back to the numbers. What I, what I want to talk about first, though, is the, the, the phrase in Australia is Australian families, and it's usually in the context of the phrase hard-working Australian families. And indeed, our new Prime Minister, Mr Anthony Albanese, uh, tweeted, my message to Australian families who are doing it tough is this. I'm on your side and we are working hard for you. So Australian families who are doing it tough. that That's the next notch up from hardworking Australian families. Prime Minister John Howard referred to Aussie battlers back when he was Prime Minister in the... Seventeen twenties or whenever it was, sure. And
0: obviously, what you're building towards is post-apocalyptic
1: families who are
0: living on the other side of the Thunderdome. That's the <laughs> the inevitable long-term <laughs> consequence of of that escalation. <laughs> Thunderdome, another great Australian invention. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how you really control population. Uh, it is. Hmm. It's the the central point of it. Two people enter, one person leaves. Um, yeah. <laughs> Look, I've never heard the phrase doing it tough before. And it's interesting to hear it explained in that context of that is one rung up. I don't know that we, we've we gone beyond um, hard-working families is the okay. phrase that is very common um, mm. in the UK. Um, and it's weird because we never decide that we're going to target um, any kind of government policy at smart-working families. You know? and. <laughs> It's just a weird choice and it's mostly like aimed at the adults in the families. Nobody says we're going to give like special benefits to kids who are working very hard in school or to toddlers who are working very hard at walking unaided. You know, it's it's a weird phrase that we focus on the labour aspect
1: um, well, of this the family comes back situation. Back to, well, this comes back to the idea that the poor are poor because of moral failings. If you were working hard, you too would be up there and therefore somehow uh, need government support because you don't need government support. Uh, and this was echoed in uh, uh, Scott Morrison's famous phrase, if you, ha- if you have a go, you get a go, which is, I mean, almost devoid of meaning, but he thought it meant something. Well, he thought, he thought that we would think it meant something. I love it. It's a great Australianism. If you have a go, you get a go. Um, yeah.
0: So we have a situation in the UK, which is um, it's, it's actually genius. Um, it's, it's devoid of moral centre, but at the same time, I love the, the brilliant, sparkling ingenuity of it. Um, a couple of years ago, Um, we're probably talking about maybe 10 years ago now, Um, there was this conversation which really started to build um, around having a a living wage rather than a minimum wage. Um, And there is uh, now a living wage um, in the UK. Um, Mm. But what the Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, did at the time, which was brilliant, was simply to rename the minimum wage the living wage, and that sheer genius, because essentially what it did was diffuse the argument that we should have a living wage, which is a wage that reflects the actual costs that families, um, individuals' families um, encounter, and therefore need to earn in order to survive. that wage is less. Interestingly, significantly less um, than uh, Australia's. Just now, it's nine pounds fifty, and you get that. I expect the situation is is much the same that you get that when you're twenty three years old than anyone who is younger than twenty three. For some reason, requires less food. Um, their rents cheaper. Um, mm. They can pay lower prices for petrol. You know, it's it's mm. normal stuff that happens. Obviously. Mm when you're uh, 19 years old that everything costs less um, than when you're 23. Um, And I'm glad that it's reflected in uh, government policy. Um, Well, hey, when you're 19, you can probably charge more for turning tricks. (laughs) That's true. And these clever economists in Whitehall have obviously factored that in. Um, (laughs) Because they are deeply familiar with the matter. They are, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So... We have this situation where we've got a minimum wage, which you only earn if you're under 23, and there are various different levels of minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So if you're 18 years old, you might as well not bother working at all because the minimum wage you'll get is like £4, something like that. Um, what? The, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It really screws you over. That's
1: almost as bad as the America. Yeah. Um, so
0: you've got your minimum wage, you've got your living wage and then in order to combat that we have what's called a real living wage and the real living wage <laughs> <laughs> is a scheme that around about 2300 employers in Scotland um, have signed up to which gives you basically an extra 40 pence um, per hour so it's 9.90 rather than 9.50 um just now um Yeah, so it's a weird system where we can't really be honest with ourselves about what it is we need to give people as part of a wage in order for them to live, Um, essentially. I was talking to one of my colleagues um, who has done a lot of work um, setting up uh, a poverty commission um, in Edinburgh, and he was telling me that the work that they've done in terms of looking at the minimum wage is that... A minimum wa- introducing a minimum wage and raising a minimum wage never results in job losses. It's never happened anywhere. Mm. So there's no strong argument against, one, not having a minimum wage, and two, not raising that minimum wage when you need to in order to keep up with the costs of everything um, as they rise. The argument about why you wouldn't have a minimum wage that keeps up and we won't this year, our inflation will probably hit 10% and our minimum wage will in no way come anywhere close to to increasing by that much um, over that period of time. That argument seems to be rooted in exactly the same thing that you're saying, that there's um, a certain level of expectation that you should be working longer than 40 hours a week in order to make ends wheat. You should be, um, instead of having your avocado on toast, you should be having just plain toast, and not nice toast, either. You should be having uh, scratchy, evil toast um, instead, in order to economize. And the weird thing is, we've got into a situation now where so much of our everyday expenditure is, contracted over the longer term. So obviously, we've always had rents, which Mm -hmm. are the case. um, But most people now will have a mobile phone, which they own on contract. And if you're a younger person, that's probably the most expensive item that you own is your mobile phone. Um, If you have a car, you're very likely to have car uh, purchase payments over a longer period of time. Um, If you are Uh, Someone who likes music, you probably have a Spotify subscription, all this sort of thing. So you don't necessarily uh, own assets as much as your parents' generation did. And you're contracted to pay for things that you're experiencing for longer than uh, would have been the case previously. So when you're saying to people, inflation's going up, wages aren't going up to match it in order to try and keep inflation lower... You're asking people to economize when people have less flexibility to economize, probably than they've ever had before. This notion of self-sacrifice and uh, scrimping and saving in quite this way um, originates from this era where housewives existed where there were actual home economists who could do uh, the real work of making sure that families could live on substantially less uh, income than they have now. That extra labour is gone. That labour is in
1: the the labour market now, um, by and large. This is a complicated topic. We could talk about this, obviously, for ages. Um, There's not a lot of jokes in it. However... In the next segment, I, I do think we need to talk about a family that is seriously struggling. And now a little segment I've titled The Life and Times of Her Majesty Elizabeth II by the Grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, and for the purposes of this podcast, Queen of Australia and her other realms and territories, Head and Fountain of Justice, of Order and of Honour. Long may she reign. Yes, because the last time we spoke, David, we were discussing... Uh, now, who'd last longer in office, Boris Johnson or Scott Morrison? We thought it was Boris. We now know that we were correct. We'll come to Boris a bit later. But listen to – listen to – what's happening to my voice there? Listen to this clip from <laughs> last <to> time. This. <laughs> okay. Now,
0: here's the thing. If the Queen died, then oh, Jesus. Boris Johnson would definitely have to leave his job because the two things would be tied together inextricably. There would be no way he could maintain his position
1: if because she Because it's lives, the COVIDs, yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. If she lives, and I hope she does. Um, I is? am, I am vaguely a monarchist.
1: Um, and, at, and she. Oh, okay. There, there's another whole rabbit hole, but yes, at the time of recording, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Queen of Australia, et etc., cetera, et cetera, is alive. She is god save the queen um so if she
0: lives then will he survive until may boris johnson is nothing if not tenacious um and he may be nothing um if not tenacious <laughs> um we only found out last year the number of children that Boris Johnson actually has, so he does oh, come have a bit on. of we a tenacious don't know deal.
1: that even today don't give us this bullshit. We've, no one knows how many children Boris Johnson has well
0: had. i mean we've we've settled on the number of six as being the number okay, whether that's accurate or not, we have a number, and to be fair that's all that's been true of all the other prime ministers
1: we've had a number that we agreed on <laughs> We'd, we've, okay. nobody's okay. checked. <laughs> the consensus is 6. Okay. Yeah. Two things here, David. We're back we're back in now, now. Yeah, he's um, a he's a very funny man that David
0: Porteous. You should have him on this podcast again. Oh anyway. yeah, yeah, there were some
1: great bits there. Now, first of course, uh, even today at the time of recording Her Majesty Elizabeth etc cetera, etc cetera, is believed to still be alive. God save the Queen. God um, save the Queen. She was uh, she was down with the covids when we recorded that back in February. Now, second, David, you said this: I am vaguely a monarchist. How vaguely?
0: Um. Oh well. Look, if if you were going to ask me, do I want an elected head of state? I would say not particularly. I've heard the arguments for uh, why we should transition to be a republic and uh scotland in our continuing quest to become an independent uh, nation has sidestepped the whole issue entirely we say even if we became independent of the uk completely we would keep the queen and i think that's a reasonable little
1: glass jar on a mantelpiece somewhere
0: well in an urn at some point you would think but uh, we'll we'll keep the queen she's
1: going to be buried in westminster abbey Dead or alive, she will be buried in, in Westminster Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm not the, the, the fucker Charles. No, no. One does not want to be buried. It's not my time. It's not one's time. <laughs> it's no, It's impossible. very early in the morning where I am.
0: <laughs> it's not impossible, that that's how it plays out. Um. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like her. I think she's done a she's done a good job. My main objection to to the royal family um, is that uh, they really all need to have hair transplants. Um, there is oh, too God many yes. bald men. They've all got money, you know. We it's not even that it's that expensive, and all the footballers have had it done, and it's just acceptable now. If you are going to have your face on a coin, why wouldn't you want a full head of hair? You know,
1: just look at Louis the 14th.
0: Obviously I, I recall what Louis the 14th looks
1: like just off the top of my head. What did he uh, look I, like? I hope I've got the 14th and not the you know, the big curly oh that was a, they were wigs anyway. See this is it. They used to just wear a wig. Yeah, so were, there will be um well,
0: actually the thing is you'll find that there would be um there'll be coins of some of the Georges. where they have uh, hair where they've, they've done their hair in the style of a wig, but it's actually yes. their real hair. Wow. You know, if you've, got, if you've got nothing else to occupy your day, you can do your hair in the style of a, of a fancy wig. Ah. Um, so, look, since we spoke, whilst, whilst when we last spoke, uh, Her Majesty the Queen had COVID, um, I, in the intervening time, contracted COVID myself. Um so same, it was same. it was yeah.
1: yeah I don't do you do you recommend it I don't recommend it I'm not in favor of it
0: um oh. I have to say and I don't care who knows you know mm. if you're looking for opposition to covid I'm going to that's where I'm planting my flag I'm against it uh, um so well against it. what what it did unfortunately for me was that it made me unable to attend an important anniversary event of my mum who is a well known European monarch? Now, I won't say the name. You'd know her if I said the name, mm-hmm. uh, obviously. Um, and what made it worse is that lots of people thought that I was lying about having COVID because of my uh, child sex island scandal, which I've admitted legal liability for and which I, of course, deny. Um, and it's very cruel when people are saying that that's you being disingenuous about something as important as that. And then the same thing happened to Prince Andrew. The exact same thing. And I bet all the people who are calling me a liar feel very silly about it now. Mm.
1: Mm. Gee, there's a lot to unpack there. None of, none of which would be tasteful. <laughs> Well, I, I think
0: the whole event was made better by the fact that there wasn't the presence of uh, of Andrew in many of yeah. the Jubilee celebrations. Um, although I myself uh, celebrated by painting a life-size nude portrait of a man. So that was what I spent my weekend uh, doing
1: uh, to I celebrate Her that.
0: Majesty's
1: anniversary. There you go. Yes, I... I did see that on the Twitter. I will post the link, obviously, along with everything else. Uh, is that chap anyone in particular? No, not well, obviously everyone, someone in particular.
0: I don't want to be classist <laughs> about the whole thing. Um, he's he's a person with as much uh, rights as anyone else, and he's definitely not on a Heathrow tarmac at the moment on a plane going to Rwanda. Um, he's, he was, he's white. I don't know that that's the, the big Uh, deal with like the deportation this is the weird thing not to, to do this not to do this not to do this thing where um we we go backwards and forwards on ourselves over the whole of the the podcast but when you look at the people who are actually arriving by boats they're generally not africans so the people who are arriving illegally tend to be from the Middle East and West Asia mm. who are actually mm. coming in. In like twenty nineteen, it was something like seventy percent of them were actually Iranians who were coming in um, on the boats. Who are, you know, they're n I I they're Iranians.
1: This is this gets into now, the obviously- whole hold up the little color coded card. You know, yeah. are they sufficiently pale to count as as us?
2: Sure, dear listener, this,
1: you you may not know this, but but both both David and I are more or less white.
0: I've got some freckles.
1: Well, Scottish, so I'm not. Right? That comes that's it.
0: There. So I'm not yeah. sure how African I might pass for if i was uh, you know if there was some kind of color chart test but i i reckon i think I'm it comes down to the white.
1: size of the spots because if the spots <laughs> of your freckles were big enough you could be a leopard <laughs>
0: is that somewhere on that chart is it like various <laughs> different uh, human races and then the large cats it's interesting yeah. okay.
1: and wildebeest
0: <laughs> they'll definitely be sent back to africa they yeah. won't be happy about them coming in
1: no No, they're they're
0: cranky bastards. So I'm interested in knowing how Australia celebrated this because we didn't hear, obviously, with all the clamour of um, bunting, because it's a very noisy thing, bunting, flaps about in the wind like crazy. We didn't hear Uh, anything. We didn't hear anything about Australia or New Zealand or Canada. We were all obsessed with what was going on in London, essentially.
1: Well, weirdly enough... We didn't really celebrate it very much. Um, I mean, it was piped. It was piped in from the UK, and I'm sure the ABC ran slabs of it because national broadcaster. Um, uh, you know, God save the Queen. Um, Prime Minister Albanese lit a a beacon, a fire of some sort in Canberra, uh, and some buildings were were lit up with coloured lights. Because
0: um, obviously Queen Elizabeth has been very strong about how much she likes fire. In the past, she's all she's mentioned yes. that many times, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that the Prime Minister has has made a little fire for her.
2: Yep,
1: and, and look, I can understand that because this month uh, in Sydney there is a thing called Vivid Sydney, which is uh, subtitled a festival of light, colour, and ideas. Um. So yeah, they just have coloured lights lighting up stuff in the city, and they put projections on the Sydney Opera House, uh, and they they run little thinky events at the Sydney Opera House and a few other things. So it's just, it's uh, just. I mean, it's it's another half-assed arts festival crossed with the Bournemouth Illuminations.
0: <coughs> sure, um, it's. Uh, I think you mean the Blackpool Illuminations. Um, I very fine, much we'll do mean the,
1: the, the Blackpool <laughs> Illuminations. But it's, uh, it's <laughs>
0: nice. It's nice to have uh, petty bourgeois festivals um, whilst uh, inflation is running rampant. I love it. Yeah,
1: I love it especially at the moment because right as we speak, uh, with all of the lights lit up around Sydney Harbour and the C- Sydney CBD. Um, The east coast of New South Wales is struggling to supply enough electricity to keep everyone's houses warm at night. Uh, Because of a whole thing, I won't bore you with the details. Um, Let's just sum it up with... ..government competence at at its highest level and privatisation and, dare I say it, corruption... I have no proof. There's never before we can, been any corruption in Australian government, so I don't know how it could possibly start now. There's there's never been any corruption involved
0: in the fossil fuel industry, certainly. Oh, hell um, no. So I, I would be Especially surprised here. to learn of it now. Especially I'd be surprised to learn of it and then not be immediately uh, murdered. Um, so, you know, I think it's just not happening.
1: Before we say a little bit more about the, the jubbly, i um. The platy jubilee I've mm-hmm. stolen that from someone. It's, it's, it's an obvious thing. When I was a lad, um, see, I'm probably a closet monarchist. When I was a, a wee lad, I thought the idea of actually having a, a professional class of people trained from an early age to run things properly with a long-term view was not such a bad idea. Um, as I grew older, the idea that they think they were there by the grace of God, etc., and and their qualifications were that they came out of a particular vagina, um, probably less appealing. But I, I also was fascinated by... you know what? By- I'm sorry.
0: I'm sorry, Still. I, I actually have to draw a line somewhere back from that. It's actually <laughs> not the vagina that's important at all. It's the issuance it's the- from a particular penis. That's, yes, um, ultimately. So it, we need to roll back yeah.
1: That is quite true. How could I be so <laughs> stupid as to forget this fundamental aspect of out of which particular orifice royalty comes?
0: Yeah, the, I <laughs> so, think there's, there is... See what I did there? Um, I do see what you did there. Um, there is something um, in terms of their. There is something really appealing about the notion of a, of a patriarchy in the sense that you i don't know anyone who doesn't want someone else to make tough decisions you know i don't know anyone who doesn't want to appeal to some sort of higher power um in the sense of in whatever sense you might mean that but certainly in the sense of someone who's um educated and considered and wise and impartial and all of the things that we would want um, are great leaders um, to be um, in many ways. The problem, it seems, is that most of them are really stupid um, and the rest of them are corrupt. And it's only once in every couple of hundred years that you get by a system of, by the patriarchal system, by, um, you know, the, the nobility produces um, anyone of any significant metal, um, essentially. And it's a long time to wait, long time to wait between competent uh, leaders,
1: essentially. I mean, if you're a dog breeder, for example, no, you know, if you're saying, I, I reckon the ideal dog would be sort of halfway between a Labrador and... A poodle, because that's a thing. You're not going to get it right first go. And even down the track, it, you know, it, it, you know, every, every now and one of them really does. You go, nah, that's that one into the Hessian sack, into the river. I mean, because it's, it's the responsible thing to do. Sure what dog reading teaches us
0: though is that actually the mongrels the mutts the uh the crossbreeds tend to be both genetically stronger and uh have better temperament and be quicker uh be smarter all those other things it's almost as if um the whole idea of eugenics is nonsense it's almost as
1: if that's what's going on there again dear listener there's a lot to unpack there As a kid, I was fascinated um, with the the formality of language and how, like, a letter was properly laid out and where everything was and and how file numbers were put on them and things like that. Um, And I actually had, probably when I was about 11 years old, this idea that it would be fun to be uh, the private secretary for the the monarch or governor of some tiny little nation of no consequence and just send out formal invitations and, and word treaties and proclamations. As I say that, I do notice this podcast is called The 9pm Edict and I it used to once have an edict at the end of each episode. Uh, I, I don't know what that says about me. I went to a private school. they fucked with my head. I think there's there's something
0: in a in a sense noble about wanting to be part of something bigger than yourself in quite that way um
1: such as colonial oppression
0: nothing bigger than oneself than colonial oppression i mean that's the thing if you were going to get involved in any activity from like the f- 16th century to the 19th century it was colonial oppression ah Like, the people who were trying to start Apple computers in 1750,
1: they were hopeless. Couldn't be done. That was Sir Isaac Newton. (laughs) Um, Sure. I'll let Um, the lister join the dots on that one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I got that. I uh, actually, I uh, took the civil service exam after university which is like civil service fast track it's not to become like it's not the american one where you get to become a postman um mm. essentially no there's anything wrong with postman please please keep delivering my post i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> please i need that post or i don't it's mm. unclear to me until you deliver it <laughs> <laughs> um but um i i uh, i thought that was where my uh career would actually end up uh going um, as it turns out, I'm not very good at doing maths unless I have a calculator with me. Um, so that was that's the bit that I for. fell down on. Oh. Yeah. Um, it's it's one of those e- exams where they're like, oh, no, you should definitely be able to do maths without a calculator. Um, and that's the bit that I fell down on. So By maths, do we mean arithmetic? Um, well, it was um, estimating. It was fairly large
1: numbers essentially, but probably it is just arithmetic, yes. Okay. Because uh, weirdly enough, I did a similar thing in my first job, proper job out of university was in the public service as a clerk, um, uh, a job which now would be essentially one part of an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, <laughs> but there you go. You um, know,
0: the, the interesting thing is it's like at one point um, the, the British East India Company Um, was run from London by like two guys. Um, It was like an entire empire that was run on a shoestring. And the weird thing is we've massively expanded the, the bureaucratic apparatus of basically everything we do. But I feel like almost everyone is just pushing spreadsheets around from one place to another. I don't know that we're really doing anything in in the sense of, like, government running anything. I don't know that we're doing anything better now than we were before. I think the improvements that we've seen come from having more people in kind of frontline positions. I'm not sure that... I'm not sure if people like me are really doing all that much to help, if I'm perfectly honest about it. But I think oh, that's, a, that's I the 21st it. century um, conviction, isn't it? That we're all... Um, artisans in some way tinkering with our our masterpiece spreadsheet and using that, um, to, uh, using that as a substitute for real achievement in the world. God, that's sad, isn't it? Do you know what? I wish I was the private secretary to the monarch of a tiny inconsequential (laughs) island. (laughs)
1: Um, back to the, uh, platy jubbly. Well, what were some of the best bits for you? Uh I
0: always like the red arrows, the red arrows, if you're not aware um the Royal Air Force has this team of uh pilots who fly their planes very close together now mm-hmm. i like to I like to hope that they planned to do that all the time, like from the very beginning, and it wasn't just like an accident where like three pilots had been on the piss the night before and they were all landing at the same time, and it just so happened that none of them died. And someone very important, possibly the Duke of something, um, saw them doing that and go, jolly good idea. Let's have more of that going on in the future. I like to think that it was planned out in advance. Would you like
1: me to support or ruin that view with facts? Mm, Do I want facts? I almost
0: never want facts that I don't like, but it's like the post until it turns up. You can't tell. You can't tell if you want it or not. Go on. Give me the facts. And I'll tell you what, if you give me facts I don't like, I'll just pretend that you have some kind of moral problem that means I can disregard your views entirely. Go on.
1: Yeah, there is a fair chance of that. <laughs> no, um, um, fancy flying, like aerobatics and things, was indeed created informally by early pilots who thought, uh, who, to promote the industry, uh, the early aviation industry, we're talking in the 1910s, um, um, would put on the shows and that was part of the spectacular thing. And indeed, when, when air forces were developed, they also decided, well, that is a good thing to show off our prowess at handling these exciting new machines. So that's a thing. And then after the the First World War, when there were suddenly a lot of unemployed military pilots, uh, they, they continued doing shows for the public. In America, indeed, the phrase barnstorming comes from that because one of the tricks was to have a barn open the doors on both sides and fly your aircraft through the barn uh, to the gasps and excited uh, cheering of the slack-jawed yokels below, or in this case, to the side. Of course, if uh, Sully
0: Sullenberger does that now with a 747, all he gets is sued. It's outrageous. Um, There's no respect for the man. And and frankly, it's um, one of those things where – Obviously, you're going to have to have your airplanes just do ridiculous things in the 1910s. Disney World didn't open until 1955, so you've got nowhere to go. You've got nowhere to fly, people. Why would you want to go
1: anywhere? Where did the mouse live? Homeless, I'd imagine. Explain (laughs) why it hasn't got any pants. (laughs)
0: Actually, no, he does have
1: pants. Sorry, he
0: does have pants. Yeah, the others don't have pants. It's how he uh, creates a class-based system of oppression. Um, some of the some of the characters have pants, and some don't.
1: Wow, that's most unfair. For me, uh, oh, there's also an Australian Royal Australian Air Force has an aerobatics team called the Roulettes. Um,
0: I I haven't heard of them, but please don't take that no, personally. No, no,
1: why? Why would you have?
0: To? I don't know. It's just I just want to be very careful about this. And the U.S. Air Force one is called uh, the oh, I don't know. It's got to be something incredibly macho, hasn't it? It's got to be the the exploding uh, phalluses. Is that what it is? I don't.
1: <laughs> not not quite that macho. The Blue Angels. All right, okay. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Normally I would leave any updates until I got to the housekeeping segment, which is recorded later in the whole process, but I have to interrupt uh, because past me, yes, I know, got it terribly wrong there, and I'm not going to hear the end of it if I don't correct it. The Blue Angels is the US Navy aerobatics team and the US Air Force Aerobatics team is indeed far more macho. It is the Thunderbirds. Not that Thunderbirds. The other Thunderbirds. Uh, back to the back to the recording. For me, the the best platty jubbly thing uh, was Heinz, the uh, f- uh, food processing company in the UK. Uh, put out um, uh, a, a limited edition batch of mayonnaise called Salad Queen. Um, with a crown on it. Um, Are you not familiar
0: now, with salad cream? Salad queen. No, but it's not oh. mayonnaise.
1: It's salad oh. cream. Oh, I get the joke now. Yeah. Uh, I, I, although. I have it, heard of it. I've never known what it was. I thought well, it was just disgusting. mayonnaise. It's uh,
0: not as good as mayonnaise is basically what. Uh, salad if you can imagine a substance not not as <laughs> good as mayonnaise. mayonnaise that's what it is um it's uh, somewhat more yellow in color and if i'm honest i do not under i think maybe it's made with vegetable oil rather than being made with olive oil um but i could be wrong it looks like pus sure yeah but to be fair they do hide it in uh sandwiches so, you, you won't necessarily notice. That's true.
1: Um, whores of Yore, which is a wonderful Twitter account. Uh, big shout out to Whores of Yore. Uh, she big notes. shout out to Whores uh, of your. Go on. Yeah. We're going to get complaints about that one.
0: Are you? Oh, I'm so. I don't. I didn't want to get you complaints. I retract my statement.
1: No. Well, look, it's a thing. I have on my Twitter profile, I say that I'm a word whore. Which, you know, I I will do words for money. It's not about pleasure. It's not about love. It's about (laughs) the money. And and for for multiple clients. And that's that's all I mean. It's it's a it's a thing that's floated around freelance writing as, as a kind of self deprecating thing. But every now and then I get some irate people from a certain sector of the sex industry who don't understand irony or didn't notice the word, word in front of whore, who start shouting at me about how there, there's no evidence that I've ever worked in the sex industry, how dare you, etc.
0: Well, hopefully hopefully, you destroyed all that evidence, still. I mean, that would be the sensible thing to do.
1: Well, I, I can actually say I haven't worked in the sex industry. I've worked with the sex industry on sure. some uh, health education projects uh, in, in the whole ugly world of HIV AIDS uh, back some years ago, etc. Uh, I have done radio programs um, talking about the industry. Why Why are you covering your face and <laughs> laughing? What have I said? Because
0: obviously I want to say, yeah, I've worked with the sex industry as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have had a beer with Ron Jeremy. Weirdly enough, oh, he's it's not PC anymore. Yeah. That was a strange experience. Hmm. Um. So, and I have friends there, and we had the lovely Corinne on this podcast, uh, a sex worker who decided that civil engineering <laughs> was full of too many awful interactions with men, so she became an escort instead doesn't surprise me honestly yeah which is just a whole lot easier because everyone knows the ground rules and yeah I feel like there's a lot that gets um,
0: swept up in terms of language that we use to describe things and actually I think the more important thing is attitudes that we have towards people Yeah, and I think there I, I feel that there's far too much stigma attached to the sex industry in general absolutely Um, when in fact it is something that if it's, it's weird to describe it this way, but if there wasn't a need for it, it wouldn't exist. And I don't know that I feel like there are any number of people who will view it as empowering and positive, um, and a choice to go into, whereas there will be people who don't feel that way, but I kind of look at it in in the sense that kind of every job is like that if you can choose to do it and you like it then it's a good thing and if you find yourself forced into those
1: circumstances then it's mm-hmm. not good so mm-hmm. you know and we all know about the horrible people trafficking and things and oh sure yeah bloody yeah. bloody bar or people in desperate circumstances who end up working in the industry via via yeah. management which is which is not considerate of its workers etc yeah. etc um that's another whole thing yeah. Um, but in, in terms of respect for language in the sex industry, whores um, of yore did note that the, the pus-coloured salad queen um, reminded her of the American slang term salad queen, which is gay slang for a man who enjoys a spot of analingus. Now, mm. those of you not familiar with the National Airline of Ireland, analingus... <laughs> <laughs> I've flown, I've flown Aer
0: Lingus in the past and that is not on the menu.
1: <laughs> Surely that would depend on the orientation of the cabin crew. Ainolingus, <clears throat> the pleasuring of the ass with the tongue. Horse of Yore goes on to note that uh, part of that slang, which uh, originated in prisons in the US, is to toss the salad, which is analingus. Apparently, Nicki Minaj sang about this in her song Anaconda. I cannot verify whether that is true or not.
0: I feel like it's been adopted by women as well. I think it probably means, I think my my feeling is that it means cunnilingus as well as analingus
1: now. But that that might be inaccurate, so please well, don't
0: take my word for it.
1: Yes, according according to the uh, according to the Urban Dictionary, yes. Quote a slang term: tossing the salad. A slang term indicating the use of one's tongue and lips to lick, suck, and penetrate one's anus. Is it the same ones? Your own right. for the purposes of sexual stimulation. I I cannot penetrate my own anus with my tongue. But it's ah. nice to have galls, isn't it? It's nice to have ah. galls. <laughs> so the term originated in prisons in the late 1970s or early 1980s and was derived from the fact, uh, here we go, salad dressing was often used to help suppress the taste. Other condiments such as grape jelly, maple syrup and ketchup have also been used for this purpose. I'll be honest, if it's, if it's arsehole
0: or salad cream, it's 50-50. You know, I don't think that it necessarily
1: makes that much of a difference. I I believe that another way of avoiding the taste problem is oh, basic hygiene. Sure,
0: but you're in prison. Look, I'm not going to excuse the practices of people in prison in the 1970s anywhere. Um, you know, but I can see there being uh, there there being extremist circumstances. You've already like you've already cut your bar of soap into a shiv so that you can uh, stab someone with it. Is that what happens in prison? I imagine it is. I believe Um, so. Yes.
1: Sure. Uh, I know that there's I know that soap is a thing and I know that shivs are a thing. So (laughs) sure.
0: (laughs) Good. So in the writer's room that is composed entirely of us, that is the story of what
1: happened to the soap in prison. Good. Okay. Yeah. I I await the call from HBO. (coughs) <coughs> Where were we? Oh, um, Her Majesty the Queen and Analingus. Yep. I mean, you brought us here. Um. So, well done, Hines. <laughs> yep. Long may they God reign. God save the Queen. Or <laughs> in other country. While I was checking on Her Majesty's full titles for uh, for the start of this segment, which uh, we started recording about three and a half hours ago, yep. it feels like. Back in prison in the
0: 1970s. Yeah, we started yes. recording this podcast.
1: By Royal Appointment. Um, what's the soap? What's the one by Royal Appointment?
0: Uh, imperial Leather. Imperial Cousins. Leather. <laughs> yeah, that's why? a soap. It's a soap. It I is. didn't make, just make it up. No, no, no. I, you, leather soap. I I don't know why it was. Maybe it smelled of leather. I'm sure. I'm sure. My gran used imperial leather. Um, It's (laughs) an image that comes to mind. (laughs) I don't know. To be honest, when I'm doing my shopping, I very rarely check to see whether there's a royal seal of approval attached to the things that I'm buying. I, I don't think I've ever bought something
1: because the Queen likes it. Some of her titles, alternative titles around the world, around the Commonwealth at least. Now, some of these are quite fun, but I'm wondering if I now read them and we end up laughing whether we're, we're being a bit racist. Sure. Um, so let's go. In Jamaica, for example, Mrs Queen, I think that's quite sweet, actually. Yeah. Or the Queen Lady. Hey, the Queen Lady... Oh, oh, no, don't do the accents. That is racist.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's nice. I, I think that's... I'd be curious as to whether or not that's actually, like, her official title. If, like, the no, government of Jamaica has, like, decided to to call her that in some kind of official capacity, or if that's just something
1: informal that's happened. Uh, Say at the top of the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Queen. Whereas... Sure? We, <laughs> whereas the Queen Lady... <laughs> nah. Um, Papua New Guinea, in the language that is called tok pisin, which uh, most people not in the, this region refer to as pigeon English, pigeon it's not pigeon. it's just pigeon uh, or Papua New Guinea pigeon. And even though it's called pigeon, it's actually technically a um, Creole now rather than a pigeon. Hmm. So there you go. Um, you can look that up for yourselves. I will link to um a podcast by linguist John McWater from the United States explaining the difference between creoles and pigeons. Anyway, um uh Mrs. Quinn and Mama belong big family. Yeah. Good Yeah.
0: Good names. That's what they're good names. Um I mean, I feel like I feel like Queen is quite a good title, if I'm honest. Quinn, K W I N. No no just yeah. Q U E E N. I feel like like regionalization of like titles. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a hundred percent necessary. Um but fine, fine. I see the Russians have a title for her. <laughs> Shall we do that? Bubba Lisa, Granny
1: Liz. Which is nice, it's quite affectionate. Yeah. yeah. Um, There's a couple from the UK. You you can perhaps tell me how widely these are used. Princess auto mechanic? Nope. Nobody calls her that. What a shame. The world's sweetheart. Sweetheart. Rubbish. No.
0: Nobody's. Well, look, maybe during the war, because obviously she was was an auto mechanic mechanic during the war, and she was was a looker
1: um, in her youth. Um, Let's not kid ourselves. Not enough um, so, to turn me, but I can see that, you know, there's plenty of others who'd have a go. There certainly were plenty who would have tried. Um, <laughs> who would like this young auto mechanic to take them for a ride. Yeah. Um, you know, I,
0: I, I've I, no doubt that she was probably in the early years of her reign, even perhaps referred to as the world's sweetheart when she was doing her first sort of uh, international tours. But no, those are, those are not... There are not descriptions of her that survive in common usage just now. She's the queen. Yeah. We tend not even to refer to um her name if I'm perfectly
1: honest anymore. It is just the queen. That's true. I mean, who what other one would you be referring to? Exactly. The New Zealand um phrase in in Maori and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, I'll have a couple of run-ups at it. I, I can't get the emphasis on the right syllables in long Maori words. That'll do. Rare white heron of single flight. Um, as a Maori speaker,
0: obviously, I know that that was perfect. Well done. Yes, um, thank you. Maori
1: being, of course, the second national language of Scotland.
0: It is, right before Gaelic. Um, And I I think rare heron of single flight is, I love that it's weird. It feels um, wonderfully sort of Japanese and sad. It does. It makes me think that they gave her that name, that she was given that name by a small group of Maori who planned to assassinate her. In some sort of, in some sort of red arrows related um, accident, and that was their that was their scheme. That was the code name for her rare white heron of single flight. Soon may she die is is probably how they referred
1: to her. Two facts about New Zealand that you need to know at this point: point. one, it's not very far from where I live. By which I mean only about three or five hours flying time in an airliner, which I know by European standards that's insanely long way away. But for us, no, that's just a quip. I think it's three hours. It's three. Oh, it looks like five hours because there's a two-hour time zone difference as well, if you're going there. So it's relatively close. And, and two or B, I can't remember whether I did A or one, uh, B... Marry can often be very, very big chaps and fierce. Hey, look, that's what makes them well
0: disposed to being involved in plots to overthrow monarchs. You know, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you want some big chaps with you. And look, I'm not saying that any of this actually happened. I'm saying that Rare White Heron of Single Flight feels like the code name of the target of your assassination plan. It just does. It just does. If you were going hunting, uh, if you're going on safari and you were doing big game hunting and you were adopting the Rhodesian title, Rhodesia, which does not exist anymore. Zimbabwe now. Yeah. If you were using that title for uh, Queen Elizabeth II, which is Great White Mother of Africa, that definitely implies that you've got an elephant gun with that name carved into it and you're planning to take her down and mount her on your wall.
1: If you're the kind of person who still refers to Zimbabwe as Rhodesia, then great white mother of Africa has a kind of safari suit, pith helmet, flavour to it. If you are, say, a black American from Detroit and refer to someone as a great white mother. <laughs> great white mother,
0: yeah, that's different. There's a whole different uh, connotation attached to that. Yeah, It's not an honorific in that case. No. I, do do I, I
1: will end this segment very briefly by noting that uh, this week, essential polling here in Australia did run the support for Australia becoming a republic numbers uh, past the population. And it's been remarkably consistent over... Uh, I should just say the reason this is in the news is that um, when the new government was, or the new ministry was sworn in the other day for the new Albanese government, they noted that one of the junior ministers had as part of their job Minister for the Republic. And this surprised a lot of journalists, even though there had been a shadow minister for the Republic in the Labour Party for the entirety of the time they'd been in opposition. And it support for the Republic has been part of the Labour Party's national platform, I won't say for fucking ever because I'm not sure, but for a very long time. But journalists are shocked easily as their headlines will show. Anyway, about 40-45% of Australians uh, support the idea of a republic. About a third, on average, don't. And about 20-25% are unsure. Um, we don't, We don't really care too much. I mean that's not that's not a resounding support for a republic well, it's not, but I mean I'm curious
0: as to why it hasn't resulted in some kind of um, significant change because to be honest, um if you've got forty forty five maybe fifty percent of people who are actually in favor of something, that would seem to be sufficient um, numbers that you would have an attempt at a at a referendum is Is there a well, sense we did? Ah, is, is there a sense that Australia might be waiting for the news that COVID or a Maori strike team and jet planes have finally done in Queen Elizabeth II, and then they might move to become a republic?
1: There is that feeling. Um, and certainly it's not expressed in any official way, but, you know, you just... You just chat to folks, and that's what they say. Sure. We did have a referendum. We did have a referendum on the topic of a republic in 1999, 1999 um, which uh, the vote was 45 percent in favor, 55 against uh, round it off, call it that. Hmm. But one of the reasons was that the question put up was one that many in the Republican movement did not agree with because it was to alter the Constitution to establish the Commonwealth of Australia as a republic with the Queen and Governor-General being replaced by a President appointed by a two-thirds majority of the members of the Commonwealth Parliament, Uh. i.e. Parliament elects the President. And the feeling was that, no, we, uh, we want directly elected president chosen by the people.
0: That's a Um, lot to to put together in one sort of statement for a yes or no um, answer for that. I find that um, when thinking about these kinds of questions, I know that there are lots of people who like a straight yes and no, but actually mm. the better option invariably has proven to be sequential choices. So it would be, would you support... um, Uh, an elected head of state or would you would you like to become a republic which would mean that there would be an elected president how would you like that president to be elected a sort of a two question system would have given you a better more honest response than trying to do things as one thing
1: yes but you don't understand the actual aim of prime minister john howard which was to become president john howard which was to have the referendum
0: fail Oh, was it? Okay, interesting. Yes. Well then oh, he yes. did it perfectly.
1: Good. Yes. Nice <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great work. Howard Howard was a canny bastard. I mean, you know, you've got to admire how he played the game. It was or well, not, you know, really. That's probably enough about royalty, isn't it?
0: Arguably too much, I'd say. Mm. Mm.
1: Right, I've already corrected myself about the uh, aerobatics teams. Uh, Other corrections? Yes, Louis XIV, King Louis XIV of France, is the correct king with the fabulously extravagant curly hair. Um, Cousins Imperial Leather Soap, no, does not have a royal warrant. I don't know what I'm thinking of because, in fact, uh, there doesn't appear to be a soap maker to have a a royal warrant from Madge Liz, Uh, although Procter & Gamble received a royal warrant in 1965 from the Prince of Wales. It does, however, appear that uh, the brand name, Imperial Leather Soap, uh, does refer to an empire, but not the British Empire, The Russian Empire. Uh, The brand name had its origins in 1768 when a Russian nobleman by the name of Count Orloff commissioned a brand of perfume from Baileys of Bond Street in London. The perfume was called Eau de Cologne Imperial Russe. Uh, Russian leather apparently was a high-quality leather exported widely from Russia. It could be recognised by its distinctive aroma from its uh, tanning pro- process, uh, which used birch oil. Um, so it's not entirely clear from uh, that Ultimate Source Wikipedia whether uh, the soap smelled of birch oil uh, because it was a Russian client or not, but it's it's was called Russian leather originally, and then later called Imperial Leather. I hope you're excited by that. I, I'm still thinking of David's grandmother and leather for some reason. Uh, the next uh, the next episode of this podcast, uh, next week I'll do a solo one. I'm still lining up some winter guests and uh, waiting for confirmations to come back. So in the coming week, I'll do a solo episode uh, because there's actually quite a few things to do uh, with our new government here in Australia that I would like to vent my spleen about. And I don't really wish to involve any other poor sod uh, in that. I mean, apart from you, dear listener, of course. I know, I know you love it. Um, and then we'll continue back to the special guest episodes after that though I can't tell you just now what order they will be in. Thank you, of course, to all the people who make this podcast possible. Uh, I want to thank all the people who contributed to the 9pm Winter Series crowdfunding campaign. Uh, You're all listed on the website. Today, I want to thank uh, some of the folks in the middle of the reward structure, buying one trigger word is is uh, one of the two more common uh, levels of support. So I thank you all in alphabetical order, Andrew Best, Bruce Hardy, Chris Rauchel, Dave Gorkroger, Frank Filippone, uh, Gavin C, uh, Joanna Forbes, Joop DeWitt, Mark Newton, Matthew Moylecroft, Michael Cowley, Miriam Mulcahy, Nicole Coombe, Oliver Townsend, Paris Lord, Paul Williams, Peter Blakely, Peter McCrudden, Peter Wickens, Rick Heyman, Rowan Taylor, Scott Reeves, Stacey Smith, Stephen Collins, Mobile, and... For people who choose to remain anonymous, thank you all for your trigger word purchases. You know the drill. Some of you have done it already. Tell me what trigger words you would like to use. They can be aimed at a particular guest. Just make sure you you get that in in time. Uh, They can go into the glass jar of transparency to be one of those drawn out at random at appropriate times. Or... You can throw it into the glass jar and just say, choose a random word, and I will choose a random word from a website that generates random words. If you would like to join these people in supporting to the podcast, uh, there isn't a campaign running at the moment, so just go to the 9pm slash tip and do the needful. That's the 9pm slash tip. And now back to this exceedingly long podcast with David F. Porteous III. Right, as if we had trouble finding things to talk about, David. <laughs> Whoop. Whoa. This is the glass jar of transparency which canes, uh, contains trigger words which regular listeners will know have been... Bought by actual dollar-paying members of the public, well, people who listen to this podcast. We will draw one of them out shortly, but there has been a trigger word sent in specifically for you by Jono Ferguson over in New Zealand, Aotearoa. 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 One of them would be right. We'll edit that in. Devolution. Now, I see what he's done there. Sure. Um, I don't know if there's a
0: special uh, context, a special Antipodean context for, for the word devolution, but obviously Scotland has a devolved assembly. Yesterday, in fact, mm. Scotland, uh, the Scottish government uh, published um, its new, the first of its new documents arguing for a second referendum on Scottish independence. Ah. Um, and basically the issue of, Um, devolved powers to scotland versus scottish independence is not going to be resolved whilst there is still around about 45 to 50 percent of people who want scotland to become an independent country um essentially um that's just that's just where we are um with it and it doesn't use your new brexit freedoms no, no. Arguably, Scotland has fewer freedoms, um, one of the consequences of Brexit. Um, yes. But what uh, the move would certainly... The the situation would improve for the prospects of a continuing United Kingdom if we didn't have a Conservative government at Westminster. Because mm. none of the... Um, none of the other nations apart from England actually elect any significant number of Conservatives. Um, They are, and haven't, for 30... Years, yeah, I think that that's about right. Um, certainly, the the sort of Thatcher era, the end of the Thatcher era, era, spelled the demise of conservative members of Parliament in any of the other countries apart from England. So it's been a, it's been very much a rule from the centre, and what that means is disproportionately rule from the south of England, um, essentially, um, for a while. It's kind of demoralising and kind of impossible to resolve without um everyone in england changing their minds no no i mean who would we be fighting against i mean to be honest the 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 average (laughs) for our independence from england interesting (laughs) Um, no if you speak to the average sort of english person about this they're like if scotland wants to be independent let them be independent but Mm. there is um, an intransigence from uh, Westminster who doesn't want to see who's very attached to the idea of there being a United Kingdom. Um, essentially, at least until the oil runs out, then pff, they're they're less fussed.
1: Does Scotland get to keep the nuclear submarines and no, the we- intercontinental ballistic missiles?
0: We've been very clear that those would have to go somewhere else. We don't want the nuclear missiles. We're not. We're not even like saying we want them in, as part of the divorce settlement. We're opposed to to having them here. Can I have one? I mean, they're not ours, but sure, yeah. <laughs> you can take that to the bank. See what they give you for it. Uh, ah. David Porter says that still, can have, uh, can have a nuclear
1: submarine. There you go. Uh, I could turn then up on at, sell it to the Royal Australian Navy.
0: Sure, turn up at Faslane um, with that written on a bit of paper,
1: <laughs> and uh, and see <laughs> what happens. Here. On the letterhead of some small and inconsequential <laughs> that's tropical <right>. colony. <laughs> Whilst at the same, uh,
0: the the Queen of such and such invites you to dinner, also please give us a submarine. That, yeah. uh, that's how that would go.
1: So for me, um, Devolution, uh, I want to talk about this very briefly in the context of uh, the television series The Orville, which is the homage to Star Trek uh, by Seth MacFarlane, creation of Family Guy and various other things in which he plays the captain, Captain Ed Mercer. I won't go into the whole thing. But the first two series of The Orville uh, were kind of witty and, uh, oh my God, woke Good heavens, unlike Star Trek, which, of course, has is, is never been woke. Um, this is quite woke, quite amusing. Uh, it has been described as Star Trek with dick jokes. Um, first two series, quite well. Series three dropped, but it's uh, under a new production company, and it's called The Orville Colon New Horizons. Probably shouldn't have read out the colon. Uh, and it's shit, can I just say. I've given up... I. I Gave up halfway through the first episode. I, I decided maybe I was just tired. I would push through, finish that, watch the second, but no. It, it has lost the wit. Um, each episode is longer because the pointless, whizzy, flying spacecraft scenes seem to be longer. They seem to be interminable. Uh, maybe, maybe children of three or four years old would like the kind of whizzy objects on the screen, and they could giggle and laugh. Uh, uh, it's no longer a comedy, though, and and I I was therefore obliged to start looking for the plot holes, the technological inconsistencies uh, and things, which is, which is something that you're not even meant to do in these series, are you? You're meant to just accept that they have these vast technologies um, to transport matter or a thing called a tractor beam or to have artificial gravity, but they don't have seat belts. Sure.
0: I mean, I feel like it comes up Every episode, but also not that much. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> it seems like people well you know
1: what? Or fuses in the electricals.
0: I'll be honest, I don't understand why there are so many major power conduits running behind the iPads that they use to control the ships. Yeah. Um, that's that's the main objection that I have to it. Um, it feels like you don't need you don't need a power conduit to work an iPad. I'm not even sure why they're like wired into something. Isn't there like wireless charging? At some point, it feels like it feels like there's there's always this suspension, which is um, the suspension of disbelief is um, difficult to sustain under a lot of scrutiny for any specific mm. application of the technologies um, that they have. So it's never explained, for example, why um, what everyone is doing. In the Star Trek universe, given Mm. that they can make food from replicated stuff, they can make objects replicated, they've got um, holodecks. You know, it's not clear what industry is doing. It's not clear what everyone who isn't in Starfleet does for
1: any kind of activity. Well, cleaning, although we have robots cleaning even on Earth today, Um, someone's got to muck out those food replicators.
0: Look, I am gonna go. I'm. I'm gonna just gonna say this, and if I'm wrong, I'm not gonna care. There is mm-hmm. at no point in any Star Trek: The Next Generation episode anyone cleaning anything on a starship. And if I'm wrong, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Just keep I it to must yourself. Get
1: pretty fucking rank by the end of their five-year
0: mission. I feel like they've got nanotechnology which does the cleaning they've got something oh. that does the cleaning it will be surfaces will be uh, like um self cleaning glass you know they'll work with light or something and they'll destroy dirt that sounds almost
1: like an advert for a for mr muscle
0: um there but mm. it will be it will be this something this is mr like
1: muscle that. the cleaning product as opposed to <laughs> mr muscle in other contexts, sure. yeah, yep, yep, um,
0: yeah. I'm I'm sad to hear that about the Orville, mm. um, because I thought it was um, moderately um, entertaining, and certainly I did watch the the first two um, full series of it. Um, yeah, and obviously one of the the cast, Norm Macdonald, um, who was a very funny man, uh, passed away, and I imagine wasn't in the third series. He played he played a gelatinous blob in the series. It was only voice
1: work. Here's the thing, I can't even remember whether the gelatinous blob is in the, <laughs> this next series or not, and quite frankly, I don't care. Oh, well. Because without the jokes, what is this character for? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, yes, look, that's probably quite enough about the Orville. It's a bit, it's shit, don't, don't watch it. And, and we're running out of time. So, I think we need to move beyond trigger words. Sorry, children. Fuck it. Press the button. Boris Johnson. Let me read out what you've said here. Could we do a bit on Boris specifically? <laughs> I think... The twos and fro's of confidence votes might be interesting and I learned about it, so maybe you have to as well. Yeah, I guess I have to learn as well. All I know is that Boris Johnson survived a no confidence vote, well, a confidence vote, uh, and, and he was deemed to be confident by the Parliament of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland.
0: So there's a number of things here, and mm. I'll I'll take you all into the weeds a little bit for this. Now, the media obviously has an interest in saying that something interesting could happen. That's that's basically yes. what media does all the time. Something interesting mm. is going to happen, therefore. Stay listen tuned for this. That's that's yeah. that's basically it. Now, the question was was Boris Johnson going to lose his vote of confidence? And the answer was definitely no. There was no circumstances under which he was going to lose that vote. And what's interesting is, firstly, it's not a vote of no confidence by Parliament. It's a vote of confidence by his own party members.
1: Oh, sorry.
0: Yeah, well, this is immaterial to it. Um, No sitting Conservative Prime Minister has ever lost that vote of confidence. So literally since the the process was created by which British Prime Ministers could be removed, no one has ever been removed by that process. Um, so was Boris Johnson going to be removed? No. And one of the main reasons for it um, is that there are always um, a majority of people in the party that's in power who have jobs in government. So in addition to being an MP, they'll also be the uh, parliamentary private secretary for this, or they'll be the minister for something other, you know, that sort of thing. And it adds up to, it varies from parliament to parliament, but somewhere between 150 and 170 jobs, um, essentially. So there's lots of them um, kicking about. And essentially, if you have a government job, you'll vote for the person who's um, given you that job, ultimately. And that is exactly what we found. Um, There is a
1: a term in Australian English for this, which is a bit of a harkback, brown-tonguing sure that that's exactly right um and
0: the the thing is a lot of the people who are currently brown tonguing boris johnson uh, strange to say would almost certainly not be allowed to brown tongue anyone else their their tongues having become so rancid with salad cream that they wouldn't be allowed anywhere near um someone else so what happens now is the interesting thing so um there's only been, in, in living memory, there's only been one person who's, who's lost this vote um, who wasn't Prime Minister at the time, um, who was Ian Duncan Smith. He was terrible anyway, so it doesn't matter. But the confidence motion from the 1922 committee is essentially designed to be a, a red flag.
1: Sorry, 1922 committee? Yeah. So the Conservative we probably did talk about that last time, but I can't fucking remember. No, I don't know that we would have the the 1922
0: committee is essentially the committee of backbenchers. Um, so they are the ones who have um, certain powers to trigger leadership contests in the Conservative Party. Um, it's a fairly Pistols. arcane system. Pistol, sure. Um, it's not. It's not all that old. Um, I'm not sure if it actually comes from 1922, which might be suggested from its from its name, but it's certainly not a very old process. Obviously, the Conservative Party itself is not a very old um, institution, anyway. But it's non-government um, members of Parliament who um, are on that uh, committee, uh,
1: essentially. Quick fact check: the 1922 committee was founded in April 1923. There you go. See, <laughs> good, great work, everyone.
0: Yeah, <laughs> there will be a very good reason why it was nineteen. It was nineteen twenty-two um, at the time, um, probably to give it that sort of sense of um, already having been established. You know, they maybe uh, had a stone carved with established nineteen twenty-two that they could uh, stick
1: somewhere. That's um, more boring than that. The group was formed by MPs who had been elected in 1922. Ah. Uh, where the 1922 Committee of New MPs. Fair enough.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what happens next? Well, Margaret Thatcher um, faced. Go uh, God save the Queen. God save the Queen. Um, faced. <laughs> Uh, a leadership contest. So they changed the rules a little bit, but it's basically the same thing. Faced a leadership contest, won the first round um, of that contest, and then resigned. Uh, John Major um, faced the same kind of uh, challenge, won his contest, lost the next election. Um, essentially, seen as being hammered by a whole range of things, um, and then Theresa May um, faced the same contest, um, won, and then resigned. So the normal process for a prime minister is: if you are challenged in this part of con- in this contest, you will resign fairly shortly afterwards. Or if you hang on, you will probably lose the next election for uh, the party. That's how history has gone. Now, the question is, will Boris Johnson do the honorable thing? And the answer is he never has to this point in his life. So it's unlikely that he's going to begin by doing the honorable thing now. And that poses a real risk for for the government um, just now, because what they have in Boris Johnson is someone who is still a populist figure, who commands certainly the support of the majority of Conservative Party members, who might be their best chance at winning um, the next election, but who also has this albatross around his neck. Actually, the wonderful thing about him is he's, he's a man whose stout frame is able to hold multiple albatrosses around his neck. Um, and he has them. So he will have the inquiry into COVID. He's got another couple of by-elections coming. He'll have the party gate scandal investigations. And no doubt there will be any number of other things that have been uh, created by his own sweeping incompetence over his period in government, which will come to haunt him. And the question is, is he going to be the party's John Major? So is he going to be the one who significantly damages their chances and places them into another... Um, 10 years in the wilderness um, politically. And that's the real risk for them right now.
1: There are echoes of that in Australia, let me tell you, Um, with a certain Prime Minister of note uh, until very recently, hanging on and delaying things to the bitter end as his popularity declined. And as it became clear that the voters had decided... Yeah, you fooled us in 2019, but in 2022, we we know you now, mate, and you're fucking gone. Although in Australia, this would have all been sorted out by lunchtime. That at the very next next party room meeting, some muppet would have been convinced to stand up and move a spill motion, as it's called here. I I move that all leadership. Positions be declared vacant and fresh vote. And then they would have uh, spent the morning arguing to and fro. By lunchtime, we'd have a new prime minister.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think we probably have something to learn from that sort of system. Last time I was on, we talk, I did talk about the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, under yes. which, since its introduction, no parliament has lasted a fixed amount of time. Um, it's a brilliant law, brilliant Um <sighs> and it's it's unfortunately the very Byzantine system of having Parliament formally dissolved by the Queen and that being within the Prime Minister's sole gift to ask the uh, the monarch to do that sort of thing, and the Prime Minister um, obviously yeah but the Prime Minister obviously not wanting to do that mm. unless it's in his clear his or her clear clear advantage um. To, uh to to hold such an election at that particular time um it's and then obviously you have the the party machinations that there's always this argument about it being too soon for the next election um appeared, which is of course it, which is of course unknowably far away because as I said there's never been um, a fixed um, amount of time until the next election. so the next election could be like six weeks from now for all I know at this point Mm. it won't be but in in theory it could be so there's um that thing about is two years too long to uh too short to introduce a new leader and there is this question which arises now about whether prime ministers should be allowed to like swap without there being an election we haven't really done that for a while we've tended to have elections um, that have brought new prime ministers in. Prime ministers have tended to be forced, cajoled, um, into holding um, new elections to justify their positions um, within a couple of years, regardless of what the electoral cycle actually um, said was supposed to happen. So, you know, we'll we'll see. My, my guess is, if I was going to uh, estimate Boris Johnson's longevity, and you know how good I am at predicting the future,
1: Mm. Um, Reminder, think- your listener, in February, on February 22nd, in fact, we recorded and and boldly suggested we agreed, in fact, that, that Russia would not invade Ukraine despite all of their chest beating. And, and less than 48 hours later, we were proved a, a bit wrong. Look, can we all agree that
0: Russia shouldn't have invaded Ukraine? <laughs> Can oh, we sure. all agree that it was sure. a, like it was a bad move? It was a morally bad move, and mm-hmm. it was also a sort of strategically bad move. For it was mm-hmm. just bad all round. So, look, yep. all I was saying was, at the time, I expected that Vladimir Putin wasn't an idiot, and as it turns out, he was. So, is is it?
1: Uh, am and, I to blame? And I'm for not that? going to check the tape. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be well. Well. Thank you thank you for that thought minister. Now let me just play back your comments in the house from from yesterday. Yeah. Um so my my prediction
0: for the future Boris Johnson will definitely see out of this calendar year and in the event that I am correct about that he will almost certainly contest the next election.
1: So dear listener um confirmation there that the next um, general election in the United Kingdom will be in August. (laughs) So, (laughs) to to bring it to an end, I I don't want to go on about, I'll just link to this, uh, how many uh, Liberal Party MPs referred to Scott Morrison, our former Prime Minister, as a fuckwit. I I think we can take it as read. Uh, I'll just... I'll just read two quick quotes. We won't comment on them. One Liberal MP said, we spent a full fucking week being transphobes in Parliament and then we spent weeks during the campaign doing the exact same thing and it was fucking insane. Uh, And then another moderate Liberal MP said, he fucked us and his fingerprints are absolutely fucking everywhere on that. The bloke thinks he's a master strategist. He's a fuckwit. Well, you said
0: we weren't going to comment
1: on it, so I won't. But, well, unless uh, you have something on the tip of your tongue, I, so to I'm speak. Just, that seems to be the theme for this episode. I think it's nice to
0: see <laughs> unity in a political group. <laughs> Oftentimes elections divide people, and this has clearly brought the
1: liberals together. So, It has. But to end... I want to very quickly go to the United States. The wonderful Lauren Bobert, US representative for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. She's a Republican. She's a gun enthusiast. Uh, Here's something that she said just the other day.
2: On Twitter, a lot of the, the little Twitter trolls, they like to say, Oh, Jesus didn't need an AR-15. How, how many AR-15s do you think Jesus would have had? Well, he didn't have enough to keep his government from killing him. So.
1: <laughs> Nervous laughter there from her um, devout Republican audience who are not sure about, should I be laughing? She said something about Jesus. Is, is, is that a good
0: thing? Yeah, should you laugh at the passion of the Christ? Was Jesus, in fact, duped? Um, is the the divine power that created the universe, in fact, subject to the local laws of the Roman Empire? Um, the answer to all of those things is yes or no. I can't remember which way I phrased the questions. Um, um, but but the key thing here is Was there even
1: that, a question? No,
0: I can't remember either. But, <laughs> um, but the key thing for all of that is that the... And I'm not a religious person... But I know that the point of Jesus's story is that he was sent ultimately in order to give his life through the sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of mankind, as a, as a mm. benediction for, for all mm. mankind. It wasn't that, Oh, if only Jesus hadn't been set upon in an alley by three guys and chipped, you know, if only he hadn't been done in by those rough blokes, then everything would be much, that's not the point of his story. And I feel like someone who is standing up in front of a God fearing audience advocating for something like that is just. I think it it highlights the fact that these people often don't know what they're talking about ever.
1: Excellent. And to end a very long conversation between two other people who, broadly speaking, don't know what they're talking about. Fair. Um, Thank you for staying with us, dear listener. David F. Porteous, thank you so much for staying up late in your um, Edinburgh dungeon. Actually, there's a window there in the background. It's a pretty shitty dungeon. It's my bedroom.
0: It's my bedroom,
1: how dare you. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you for allowing me into your bedroom late at night (laughs) after I've had way too little sleep. Thank you, David. See you on again soon. Bye. Before I go, yeah, there's there's a tiny bit more to tell you about. I know this podcast has gone on for fucking ever already, but two things. One, we did talk about Boris Johnson having an albatross around his neck. Uh, I have been playing with the little AI based image generator recently called Dal E. D-A-L-L hyphen E. So it's halfway between Salvador Dali and Wally, the uh, sort of Pixar character. I think it's Pixar rather than Disney. Doesn't really matter. I bet mean, they're all the same. So I I fed in to Dali uh, the phrase Boris Johnson with an albatross around his neck and uh, I have linked to the results of that. Uh, convincingly, it is Boris Johnson with an albatross, in some of the pictures with two albatrosses, as we discussed in the podcast. So there's that. And secondly, uh, in the last episode, I mentioned that Dave Roger, who is, of course, uh, one of the, the long-time supporters of the podcast, was wondering whether, now that the leader of the Liberal Party in at the federal level, Peter Dutton, and the leader of the National Party, Susan Lay are both members of the Liberal National Party in Queensland, would I continue to rage against the coalition being referred to as the LNP? I've thought about that. I've thought about that a lot. And the answer is yes, I will continue to rage against that because whatever is going on in Queensland is still not the correct terminology for the coalition government at the federal level, which is what we're talking about. We're talking about the federal government. And, and and look, fuck you. Yes. That's what I'm going to do. So thank you. Uh, look, and thank you for your support, Dave. Uh, thank you for your, for your continuing support. But, no, fuck it. at At the federal level and at every other state and territory in the nation, there is the Liberal Party, And there is the National Party. And, oh, God, don't get me started on the Northern Territory. No, don't. That's all the edict for now. Uh, Go to the9pmedict.com for all of the credits and the links. You'll find it easily enough. Go to the9pmedict.com slash tip to do the needful and help support me through this cold, dark winter we're having. The next episode will be sometime in the coming week, a solo episode. Until then, I'm still Garian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.